Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Father, we do pray that you would now, Lord, speak to our hearts through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23, verse 14, we're going to consider the fact that God called for Israel to have three meetings per year. That's the title of the message, three meetings per year. And this is the time here, this this passage here is describing those three times when God called Israel, all of Israel, the males of Israel, to come together in one place. Let's read Exodus 23, verse 14. Exodus 23, 14. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee in the time appointed in the month Abib. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the fruits, first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in thy field, and the feast of ingathering, which is the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. That's what we're going to consider now, these three times. I mean, just imagine the setting here when this was actually given. The book of Exodus, as you know, is really a history of the time when Israel is in the desert. They've started out here at this time when this is being spoken on what they didn't know was going to be a 40-year wandering in the desert. So here at the outset, God is giving to Israel this command. And really, this is a time when they've come out of Egypt and God and Israel are getting to know each other. I mean, God has miraculously delivered Israel from Egypt. Israel, you can imagine, they're eager to hear eager to hear from God, and because, I mean, after all, God has just absolutely annihilated the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, in order to free Israel, this small people. And Israel has saw what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, way back in Exodus 4.22, Exodus 4.22, when God told Moses, thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So Israel heard that God had called them, Israel, God's son and God's firstborn son. So from the very start, before God had brought any of the 10 plagues on Egypt, God laid it out very clear for Pharaoh that Pharaoh was imprisoning God's son. God's firstborn son, Israel, 
Before the first of the ten plagues ever came, God told Pharaoh that if he refused to let Israel go, that God would kill Pharaoh's son, even Pharaoh's firstborn son. So this was really God's warning to Pharaoh. That was actually the last of the ten plagues so that God brought to Pharaoh there when he killed Pharaoh's firstborn son. And this all came about, all of these plagues came about because Pharaoh refused to let Israel go. So all those nine plagues before, before the tenth plague, they were warnings to Pharaoh that God meant what he said, that God was meaning business here, and he was going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn. So with each plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. And every time he hardens his heart, Pharaoh's saying to God, I'm calling your buff, I'm calling your bluff. All through those nine plagues, till finally God kills Pharaoh's firstborn. That's a picture of many people today, that they call God's bluff. Because God has promised that all will be cast into hell who die in their sins without believing into the Lord Jesus Christ. God has promised, he's gone on record as saying that there is no second chance. There is no purgatory. There is no, it is appointed unto men once to die and after that, the judgment. And the judgment is going to go one of two ways. Either a person is going to stand there on his own record and point to his own record and say, I'm not as bad as some of the other people. I never committed adultery. I never murdered and so forth. And actually, I've done some pretty good things. I helped a lot of old ladies across the street. They're going to stand on his own record that way, in which case the tragedy and the catastrophe and the unnecessary event will be that God will say, depart from me. I never knew you and be cast into hell. Or a person is going to stand there and say, I am a dirty, rotten sinner. I came to you as a dirty, rotten sinner. I confessed to you that I was a dirty, rotten sinner. I pleaded for you to save me. You saved me. And now I'm pointing to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as my only defense for my sins. And so it's going to go one of these two ways. And all through life, as people harden their hearts and don't respond to the calls of God, or maybe the tragedies that happen in their lives. It's like the nine plagues for Pharaoh until the last one came. And just imagine how Israel felt when they heard Moses say that God was calling Israel his firstborn son, his son. Maybe you can imagine they're saying, really? God calls us his son? So when God went to deliver Israel from Egypt, God wasn't just being nice to Israel. God was rescuing his son from Egypt. And that was the start for Israel to realize the kind of relationship that God wanted with Israel. It was a father-son relationship. And later, when God told Israel what he had done to Egypt, he explained it this way when he said in Exodus 19.4, Exodus 19.4, and God said, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. I mean, can you imagine how after what had happened in, to them in Egypt, how Israel would have said, it was really quite a whirlwind. They would have said, man, what a whirlwind was that? You know, there we were on the brink of extermination in Egypt, and all of a sudden comes these nine plagues that completely destroy the country. And then came the tenth plague that killed Pharaoh's son when we were chasing the edge of the sea. And we thought, oh, we're going to be, this edge of the sea is going to be our cemetery. And the Red Sea opens up for us. We go across. God takes the chariot wheels off of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Then the Red Sea crashes down on them, and they're drowned. 
And what happens next? We're standing in amazement on the other side, on the shore, and we're watching dead bodies of the people who were going to kill us wash up on the shore. And so you can imagine that Israel's saying to themselves, oh, wait a minute, i got to think about this a little bit. Kind of a lot to process. What was all that? And that's exactly the question that God answers when he said in Exodus 19.4, you saw what I did to the Egyptians? I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. So God caused all the destruction of Egypt, the killing of Pharaoh and his army. He said, that's what I did unto the Egyptians. And all those plagues that never affected Israel and the Red Sea that opened up for them but crashed on the Egyptians, God called that, I bear you on eagles' wings. And then Israel says, why? Why did God do that? Why did God do that? Why did God destroy Egypt and Pharaoh and the Egyptian army for me? And then he answers it in the next part of Exodus 19.4. Exodus 19.4. He says, to bring you unto myself. So you can imagine, he was like, really? That's why God did all that for me, to bring me to God? And so then he went on in Exodus 19.5, Exodus 19.5, and said, if you'll obey my voice and you'll keep my covenant, you'll be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people of the earth. A peculiar treasure unto me. That's what God wanted for Israel. Through obedience, that they would be a peculiar treasure for himself. So now that God has established how he sees Israel as his son, as his firstborn son, and he's delivered them to bring them unto himself, he proceeds to tell Israel what he wanted them to obey. And that brings us now to Exodus 23, where God tells Israel that I want all of your males to appear before me three times in the year. Just imagine, all the males, young men, old men, men who live close to the gathering place, men who live far from them, all the males, God calls all the males to come three times a year. And so the first question is, these three times had to be important times for God to call us to stop everything and to come. And so what were those times? The first time was called the time of Passover. It's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Actually, it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is Passover. We can see that in the New Testament from Mark 4.12, Mark 4.12, and the first day of Unleavened Bread when they killed the Passover. And Luke 22.1, Luke 22.1, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread do nigh, which is called the Passover. Same thing, same thing. The Feast of Unleavened Bread actually lasted for seven days when no leavened bread was to be eaten. Leaven, yeast, leaven is a symbol of sin. And for these seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was going on, and there was no leaven to be found in the house. That's what he said in Exodus 12, 19. Exodus 12, 19, seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. Whosoever eats that which is leavened, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation. Exodus 13, 7, Exodus 13, 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. There shall be no leavened bread seen with thee. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. It was so important to God that leaven be removed completely from the house. There was to be no leaven found in the house. There was to be no leaven seen in the house. So there was really a process of de-leavening the houses. I mean, uh, last week I asked my cousin, could you come out and visit me? She said, oh, no, it's four weeks before Passover, not before Passover. Because Passover is a big preparation of getting 
the mind frame of Passover and then doing all the work, a lot of work for Passover. It's a very big job to remove all the leaven from the house. Every piece of leaven has to go from the croissants to the Twinkies. It's all got to be removed. In observant homes, it's a big job. The mother just puts the house through a total, complete, deep spring cleaning where everything has to be removed. It's a big process to leaven the house. Leaven in Hebrew is chametz, chametz. And so it was very important. Why was it so important that there be no leaven? Because the lamb of Passover and all of Passover centered on the lamb, not on the Seder, which means order, centered on the lamb. And if there was no lamb, there was no Passover. And the key point about the lamb is that it had to be a lamb without blemish. And that was what God told Moses to instruct every Jewish family. This is the basis that you are to select the Passover lamb. In Exodus 12.3, Exodus 12.3, is what God said. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. You know what that means? That means that you could go to every person in Israel, and you could ask them the challenging question, where's your lamb? And they would say, that's my lamb. It wasn't the same lamb. It was just the one that, that he could make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or the goats and keep it unto the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel should kill it in the evening. So here we are. So on the 10th day of the month, every family was to cull out of their herd one lamb. And God emphasized each family had to have their own lamb. There was to be no communal lamb. There's no community of families of course, if Sam too small, they could come together with another one, but everyone's to have their own lamb. So much so, if you came to each family member, each family rather, you came to each family, you say, does your family have a Passover lamb? Each person in that family would say, oh yes, here is our Passover lamb, very specific. And each person would be proud of their family Passover lamb. And when Moses said for each family to keep it till the 14th day, that meant that the lamb became the center of the family's attention. And if you asked any person in that family, what is that lamb going to do for your family? Each person would reply, that lamb is going to save my family from death. And if you asked the firstborn of the son, what is that lamb going to do for you? He'd say, oh, it's very personal for me. He'd say, that lamb's going to save my life from death. So everyone in that family watched their family lamb very carefully to make sure it's perfect, it doesn't have a blemish, nothing, and that nothing should happen to that lamb until the time when it was going to be killed. And all of that personalization of the family's lamb, well, all of that was really the process of the lamb strongly, of the family strongly identifying with the family lamb. And all that speaks to the truth that each person must individually make the Lord Jesus Christ their personal Savior Lamb. Just like the Lord Jesus said in John 3.16 when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word whosoever means whosoever individual, whosoever person, whosoever man or woman. Boy or girl. 
And unless a person comes alone, unless a person comes alone, face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing he's a dirty, rotten sinner to the Lord Jesus Christ, then that person has not met the individual requirement for being saved from his sins. And if he dies in that state, that person will fall into the most terrible tragedy that's possible for a person to fall into where the Lord says from Matthew 7.23, Matthew 7.23, depart from me. Those are the worst four words that a person can ever hear at the judgment time from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. I never knew you. So just as each family had to have their own family lamb, each person has to have his own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To the point where the Lord Jesus would say to that person, I know you. You know me, I know you. But the selection of this family lamb was made according to a standard that God gave. It wasn't just any lamb, it had to be the perfect lamb. It was a lamb without any deformities. It was a lamb without any bulging knees because of arthritis or because of Clint's problem with his shoulder. It was a lamb without a limp when it walked. It was a lamb without any sickness. It was a lamb without any discharge from its nose, without any matter around its eyes. It was a lamb that was full of life. He ran perfectly. He didn't have any, any, any signs of unhealthiness. Basically, that was the best lamb in the family. And that was the basis for each person, each family, when they selected the family's personal lamb, Passover lamb, their personal Passover lamb. That was what he said in Exodus 12.5. Exodus 12.5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So the lamb was to be a yearling, and that's the prime of life. So all of this criteria for the lamb, it's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the family looked over all their lambs to find the perfect lamb, and when they found it, they all knew, perfect, that's the lamb that's going to fulfill all the requirements for our family Passover lamb. And the family could point to that lamb afterward and say, that's our family lamb right there. There he is. He's going to save our family from death. And that moment when each family made their choice for the lamb would be their family lamb. It pointed to the time they made their choice to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, the great introducer of the Lord Jesus to the world, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ one day, in John 1.29, John 1.29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Just as the Father made the selection of the family Passover lamb and then presented the family lamb to the house with, Behold our family Passover lamb, which will take away the curse of death from our home. Just as the family made that proclamation, to his family about finding the family Passover lamb, John the Baptist, taking the role as the father did, made the proclamation for the family of mankind about finding the family of man's Passover lamb when he said, behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Because the father was so excited. He says, look everyone, You don't have to worry about it because I found the Passover lamb for our family. He's perfect. And John the Baptist is saying, in essence, in John 1.29, look, everyone, you don't have to worry about whether there's a person who's going to take away your sin. I found him, and here he is. He's Jesus. He's the Passover lamb for everyone. He's perfect. He's going to take away the sin of the world. So this is what the characteristic was of being unblemished. It spoke to the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his complete sinlessness. He's described 
Like no other person is described in Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53.9 describes him. It says, he did no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Right away, that disqualifies everyone in this room. And then it says in Isaiah 53.11, Isaiah 53.11, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant, my righteous servant justify many. Right away, that disqualifies anyone in this room, in the world for that matter. Certainly disqualifies Israel. They think it refers to them. But the whole book starts off in Isaiah 1, where it's saying about Israel, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Somehow that doesn't sound like a righteous servant. Anyway, then the Lord Jesus, when he was standing in front of his enemies, he asked them a searching question. He looked at his enemies, and in essence, he said, all right, bring it on. Bring it on. One of you, any of you, all of you, convict me of sin. Go for it. And this is what happened in John 8, 46. John 8, 46, when he says, which of you convinceth or convicteth, convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Because in Hebrews 4.15, the perfectness of him as the Lamb of God without blemish, it says, Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. The question comes to all of us in this room. Who's without sin? Every one of us drop our heads. Say, don't look at me. He was without sin from Hebrews 4.15. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He knew no sin. He's without sin. He knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22. 1 Peter 2.22. He did no sin. And 1 John 3.5. 1 John 3.5. In him is no sin. That's who he is. That's who the Lord Jesus Christ is as the perfect Passover lamb, the lamb who's righteous, who could not be convicted of sin. Why could he not be convicted of sin? Because he was without sin. For the record of his life, no sin. He knew no sin. If you went to him and says, have you ever experienced that? No, I never have. He never knew sin by experience. He did no sin ever, and in him was no sin found. When the devil came to him in the temptation, in the wilderness, the devil was saying, turn this into bread, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, look at the beauty of all this, take this, fall down and worship me. Now, you and I, we might have a pretty hard time with all that. Why? Because the devil could find a beachhead in us. But for the Lord, no beachhead. No beachhead. And for this reason, the lamb, the family lamb, had to be without blemish to be the proper pointer, the pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect Lamb of God. Now, this was the first time in the year that all the males were to congregate to keep the Passover. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that only the males were to congregate to keep the Passover because we can see from the family of Mary and Joseph and the Lord when they went to Jerusalem to keep the Passover, it says in Luke 2.41, Luke 2.41, his family went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, his whole family. Went. I mean, just imagine what a huge entourage this was for all the families in Israel flocking to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And, you know, we think about the Passover like a national holiday, kind of like the celebration of Thanksgiving. 
You know, when Thanksgiving comes, we think of how we celebrate Thanksgiving and everyone else is celebrating Thanksgiving and we're celebrating Thanksgiving and the neighbors are celebrating Thanksgiving and everybody's celebrating Thanksgiving and the sales of the turkeys in the stores and it just emphasizes that this is a celebration for everyone. And there's really, the danger is, is to not have a strong personal involvement in heart and soul in the celebration, the holiday of Thanksgiving. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 